Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 5 of the On Path Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Andy Raskin. Andy is a master storyteller who runs a strategic narrative practice where he works with CEOs of top tech companies on getting their teams aligned around a compelling story. This wasn't always his gig though. Andy has probably had the most diverse set of roles of anyone I've interviewed on this podcast. And as you'll hear in our discussion, he's really been quite thoughtful and intentional in his career decisions, also working with the same career coach for over two decades. While we talk a bit about strategic narrative, that is in no way the focus of this episode. If you're interested in learning more about that, I've included some links in the show notes. Andy has put out some phenomenal content on that topic. Rather, as is the theme of the show, the focus is on Andy's path, the many twists and turns that got Andy to where he is today. There's no shortage of great stories in this conversation on everything from miso soup and lucky socks to interviewing Mark Benioff as a business magazine writer and working for Skype when it was still owned by eBay. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the On Path podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, great to be here, Vijay. So I've listened to many of your interviews and I've learned a ton about strategic narrative, but typically your personal story is just relegated to a quick intro question. That's not going to be the case today. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the, the path that brought you to where you are today. Okay, great. Well, if 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 we can make sense of it in uh, however long we have for this podcast, that's that's better than I've been able to do uh, in my whole life. So let's. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, this path is not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, but before we get into it, I, I want to start by asking you about one of your new projects, Chill Beefs. These are essentially five-minute episodes of people complaining set to music, and I've listened to all of them and had a good laugh. What inspired you to start this project? You know, this is purely something I'm doing for fun. So basically, you know, I think because of the pandemic, partly, I just lost touch with people, family members, friends. Yeah, you know, it's probably true for some of these people even before the pandemic, but I, I just started to really feel it. And so I, I've listened to these kind of pioneering radio producers over the years. This guy named Joe Frank. It's just really incredible. He would do these like hour long episodes, kind of rambling monologues mixed with improvisation, other stuff set to this kind of weird music. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll just do calls. I'll, just, I'll call people. It'll be like an excuse to like get back in touch. So I just call people and record their calls. And the first couple of ones I did, like people were basically complaining <laughs> about things. <laughs> And I, I played it for a friend of mine and he said, you know, I really like hearing people complain. And I realized that I kind of did too. And so uh, it really just became this kind of excuse to, to reach out to people. And then it just, you know, I just found I was having a lot of fun with it. So I just record people complaining about something and then put it to some music. Yeah. And the, the episodes are really very relatable. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Great. So let's talk about your career. and. You've really had a broad range of roles. I, I just listed down here, software engineer, Japanese TV coordinator, management consultant, translator, startup founder, journalist, product manager. Did I miss any? No, I think that, that covers well, a lot of them. Uh, product yeah. marketer, of course. Hey, product marketer. Yeah, I was, a, I was a video editor for a while at CNN, short time. That was, a, that was like, uh, I guess, part of 
related to the Japanese TV work a little bit, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah, cool. So, so let's actually start with Japan. I know in university you did a concentration in Japan. What got you interested in Japan? So actually, my university concentration was not in Japan. It was computer science. Okay. And then it was around like the third or fourth year, I had some free time in my schedule. And I'd always wanted to, the truth is I'd always wanted to learn Chinese because my family used to take it. We used to go to Chinatown in, in New York when I was a kid all the time. And I would see these characters on the menu and I, I just really wanted to be able to read it. So, you know, I could sort of understand this menu better. And when I got to college, I looked in the course catalog and Chinese was 8.30 in the morning every day. And that was just like too early for me. So every year I'd look and then like the third or fourth year, I looked and it was still 8.30, but someone told me that Japanese had the same characters, that if you learn Japanese, you could read a Chinese menu. And that's not quite true. But anyway, Japanese was 10.30. So I, <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it in a way because, you know, the computer classes I had, they just weren't very social. Like we'd, you know, we'd be in the computer lab all, all night. You know, there, that was one, I guess that's one kind of so social activity. Like you're kind of sweating over coding in the middle of the night together. But yeah. these classes were, you know, there were, there were part, we'd have sushi parties. And, and there was also a lot of the, I thought all language teachers are, are kind of almost like matchmakers in disguise. Like they'll be like, so, uh, Andy, uh, do you think Kate looks pretty today? You know, like <laughs> sort of setting you up without knowing. So there's all this fun stuff going on that wasn't happening in the computer classes. So I really like that. Yeah. You actually moved to Japan for, for some period of time and you were working for Apple. Apple was a very different company then and the world was a very different place then without smartphones and without like kind of the easy communication means we have right now. Paint a picture for us. What was it like working for Apple in Tokyo? Oh, yeah. It was really fun because this was a time when Apple, this is, this is pre-Jobs. This is probably like early, mid-90s. And Apple still had a very large market share in Japan compared to what it was already, it was already starting to lose quite a bit of market share in the U.S. And in Japan, there was this other operating system from NEC, which was had like half the market. And then mm -hmm. Apple had like, I'm, I'm going to say like 30, 35%, if, if I remember right. And then Windows was like this tiny 15%. And already in the US, there was there had been this shift where computers initially were sold at these very specialized computer stores. You know, you'd have to go to a store called like Computerland or something to, to buy a computer. And then that shifted to where, you know, Target and Walmart are selling computers and you can, you know, it became this kind of, the distribution became really democratized. And that was just happening in Japan. So Apple, when they were selling their early computers, even in the US, that they, they didn't have much software, they didn't have any software, I don't think, on them. They weren't really geared to be being sold through a target. And that was just happening in Japan. So Apple had a line called Performa that was these kind of bundled, the software would be bundled. Of course, that's second, you know, that's expected now. But so I was part of the team that introduced Performa in Japan, which meant I did a lot of the deals of negotiating the software bundling and things like that. And it was really fun. Okay, got it. And what was your day-to-day -day like in living in Tokyo? 
Well, I had lived there as a student. So after I graduated from college, because I really loved the classes I took, I was in Japan for a summer as, as part of, I was in an orchestra and we, we happened to visit Japan as part of a tour. And so I just really got into it. And then I went back as a student to, to really study Japanese there. So by that point, by the time I worked at Apple, Apple, by the way, was a summer internship that I did while I was getting an MBA. And I already spoke Japanese. So that was part of my, you know, part of my role there. And, you know, I just, the thing I love about Japan is food. So um, my colleagues and I would, they, I had a bunch of colleagues who are also really into to great food. And so we would just go out every night and, and have these just incredible meals. I love that. One of the things that happened, I remember um, because our product was kind of disrupting the traditional distribution system. So Canon owned almost all of Apple's distribution. They had some kind of like exclusive relationship for distribution in Japan. And this Performa thing was now going to be sold through regular discount stores and you know, not, not just, but like regular general merchandise stores. And Canon was very upset about it. And one of my colleagues who was kind of the person responsible for the Canon relationship, supposedly he would go around with a, with a wig and a disguise <laughs> for, literally for fear of his life. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, on the topic of Japanese food, I've heard you describe miso soup as your go-to food. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, uh, yeah. So for a long time, it was oatmeal. And then... <laughs> Last year, I took a foraging class up in Sonoma. So this was during COVID, but so they had fewer people and we distanced everything. But basically, you go out on this beach in Sonoma and you you forage kelp. And so I got some and then came home with it and dried it out. I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this kelp? Well, you know, that's the basic ingredient in dashi, which is the kind of base broth of all almost all Japanese cooking. And so I just made some, and that's also the basis of miso soup. So I got some miso, made some miso soup, and I just found like it had this just really, um, gave me this really warm, energetic feeling in the morning, like just really like getting up to it. So uh, yeah, I, I tried to, I've, I've been making it, made it a habit. So whenever I have like a big meeting, especially I make sure I, I make that and have a cup of miso soup. And it just makes me feel like ready. <laughs> nice, yeah, yeah. I like I like the idea of a of a go to food. Yeah, <laughs> I believe you have go to socks as well. Socks and underwear. Yes, uh, yeah. So yeah, I have so I have like a bunch of different socks that I feel are lucky socks. Yeah, and um, and I know this is weird, but this is this is one style of underwear that I bought a bunch of once in a while, and I somehow came to associate it with like if I have a big meeting or something, I really like that. I, I got to wear these, this, this pair. So, or that not this, I have a few pairs of them. So it's luckily it's not just one pair that I have to keep wearing over and over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think like, you know, it's, I think a lot of people have some kind of superstitious thing that uh, makes no sense uh, rationally, but you know, gets you kind of pumped and feeling good. So I like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Puts you in the right mind state. There's just that routine so a few years later, maybe about seven, eight years later, you were you were at Time Magazine. Could you tell us a bit about that role? Yeah, I had already been writing um, for a few years. So by this point, I, I had founded a startup and uh, part of I was writing in Inc. Magazine, like a, a diary of our startup 
every month or so I'd write some article about what we were doing. You know, we got a bridge loan. Uh, that would be an article or we hired somebody, you know, what, it, what we, what we had to go through and things like that. And I really loved it. And when I left that company, I started to just do it for fun. And I never really thought about it as being career, but then this editor from time Inc contacted me and said he liked my stuff and he was becoming editor-in-chief of of a Time Inc. magazine called Business 2.0 and he invited me to be on the staff and that was not something I really thought of myself as as a writer but uh, I met him I really liked him and he knew about my Japan background he had he had had some adventures in Japan and so he was like oh I'll send you to do stories there I think there's like great business stories there and that is something he did we I wound up going to Japan and writing a lot of fun stories there and uh, he also even then he promoted me to an editor after a couple of years and just taught me a lot about like how to structure the story. I learned his name was Josh Quitner, and uh, I just learned a tremendous amount from Josh. I believe you also did some interviews at your time there. Are there any that stand out? Yeah, well, one of the people I one of the first assignments I had was to go interview the founder of this tiny startup called Salesforce.com. <laughs> and this was, you know, you could call Mark Benioff's PR company and, you know, they'd get you in to see him like a few days later. And I went in to see him and, you know, he's to, it was just striking because he's pitching me not on the traditional, we have this great product and here's why it's so good. And here's, you know, the problems it solves for people. And here's why it's better than the other. He starts pitching me with this other thing. He says, Hey, software is over. Now we're in the age of the cloud. And this, I didn't realize at the time was really like the first strategic narrative <laughs> that I would be coming into contact with. And what was interesting about it was, of course, it was tailor-made for a journalist. It's He's not pitching me a claim, you know, a brag about our stuff. He's pitching me news. Like he's mm -hmm. pitching me a change in the world, which is, you know, that what does a journalist want to write about and, and make sense of, right, for people. But I think there's that journalist inside all of us that even in the sales context, you know, that's, that's what's working. So anyway, yeah, that interview became something I look back on a lot. Of course, my take on Salesforce at the time was that it would never get very big and it would just be like small, small companies because, you know, I thought I, I knew like there were all these consulting firms and stuff that their whole job was like making software like this, you know, connect to other software in the enterprise. And I was like, this web thing's never going to connect. Why I was wrong turned out to be APIs. <laughs> essentially, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or computer to computer connections that that and platforms that uh, eventually I wound up working at a company called Mashery that was all about that. But my first draft of that article was very pessimistic. And thank God for my editor. Uh, his name was Todd Lappin. Todd was more bullish on Salesforce and took out a lot of my skepticism. So I, I <laughs> even if you go look at that article, it doesn't look as embarrassing as it would have been if it just had been my first draft. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It's I feel it's such a reference Salesforce in in terms of the the strategic narrative they paint. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and Mark Benioff, he's you know he's evolved that narrative. It's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, but it still is around you know what's what's the change in the world? Like what's happening in the world? And that's that 
every year at Dreamforce, he's basically saying that. Yeah. And and so after Time Inc., then your next role was at Skype. How did that move come about? I was at a dinner party and there was a senior executive at Skype in a uh, very high level executive engineering. And he told me that this thing was happening that was very, that was secret at the time, not secret now, but eBay owned Skype at this time. So this is like 2009. And they were being sued by the founders of Skype who somehow maintained copyright ownership of some kernel of the Skype code. So how they made this deal, I don't know, but this was supposed, supposedly, this is what I've heard. And somehow they found out from people they knew at Skype that Skype had messed with that code and therefore they, they, could, they had grounds to sue. I mean, I think they were using it to gain leverage to, to sort of get more value back in the company. Uh, maybe they didn't see what eBay was doing with it as as getting the value enough. So, but anyway, this executive I met at the dinner party what had was was charged with rewriting the Skype code base from the ground up in case eBay lost the lawsuit. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in case in case eBay had to was unable to use the Skype code because of this copyright infringement. I mean, I think eBay thought they would win it, but this was like a just in case. So there was this clean room, basically, they call it clean room, where there's a kind of barrier set up with the outside to prove legally that there's no influence from the old code or people who knew the old code to, to write the new one. And he needed someone to help him kind of tell the story and pitch what was happening to the eBay board and to kind of document the whole thing. And so... He knew about my background as a journalist and that I had a technology background and, and, and all that. So he hired me to do that. And within about three months, that whole lawsuit thing was settled. A big PE firm came in and, and wound up buying most of Skype, which they then later sold to Microsoft. But as a result of being there, I was offered a job as a product manager in the API program. <laughs> and that was that was the beginning of my time at Skype. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a time when people would say, I'll Skype you and Skype was the video calling app just to help us understand the right context. What stage was Skype at then? Yeah, this was during that time. I'd say this was kind of like the heyday of Skype. Maybe it's the peak peak Skype because it was kind of downhill after that. Um, You know, I think Skype had had a really challenge, which was the revenue model was not pay for video calls. The revenue model was make cheap free phone calls internationally mostly, but yeah. And I think they had a hard time moving beyond that branding. You know, the the idea that someone would pay for, you know, like a Zoom where they 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 pay for this ability to have video calls was mm-hmm. just sort of not within their the, the way that the brand had been kind of had been set up. So uh, I think it was hard. But anyway, then, the, yeah, they got sold to Microsoft and sort of gradually, I feel like, <laughs> disappeared. I'm sure it's I'm sure there's still a big part of a lot of people's lives, but it definitely got eclipsed by other brands. Yeah. And and so after two years at Skype, you moved into a series of product marketing and general marketing roles. Could you tell us how so what what led to that next step? The role at Skype was in the API program, 
And that led to the role at Mashery. So Mashery was an early API management platform. So if a company wants to open up an API, then the Mashery platform would help you, you know, set that up for whoever is going to be using that. So the documentation to, you know, managing limits on how many calls people can make. So what they call uh, throttling and th things like this. And, and Mashery was really the, the, where I got asked to do things, basically messaging. So mm -hmm. it was where I, you know, I was already starting to see this really interesting that I could play this really interesting place between sort of the technology, the management and the, the words, <laughs> uh, the yeah. story. And this was, you know, mastery. I was responsible for what we said in our sales decks, what content we were putting out, all kinds of things like this. And Mashery was acquired by Intel. Shortly after that, the CEO of Mashery said to me, hey, you know, there's this founder I know, and he needs help basically telling the story. <laughs> and could you help him? And this was something I had thought about for a long time. Like, even when I, I, I pitched my startup back in the day, like, I really realized, wow, how important this story thing is. And the way that I saw it talked about in the kind of traditional texts, so like the traditional positioning texts, like Crossing the Chasm, or there's a book called Positioning, those things, I always found like they didn't quite work for me. And so I was looking, I, I always thought about maybe doing some kind of consulting on this. But I always thought, well, who has money? What CEO is going to budget a line item for, you know, storytelling, you know, like for the story of the company? Yeah. And here was here was the CEO of Mashery who you know, saying, hey, there's the CEO. And, and uh, the CEO he was talking about was Justin Yoshimura, who was CEO of a company called 500 Friends. 500 Friends had already, they, they were a YC company. They had already raised $13 million dollars. So this was not a you know person just of the business plan, and and here's a person who's saying he needs help with the stories. So this is really interesting. So I wound up joining Justin as a interim VP of marketing. I didn't yet have any confidence to say, okay, uh, I'll I'll just help you with that. <laughs> um, and I think it was a good move because I, I learned a lot there. You know, I, I did lots of different marketing roles, but at the end of it, I said to Justin, like, was it? So that company was acquired too. And when it was acquired, I said, well, so what, what, uh, was it worth it? What you paid me and stuff? He said, yeah, yeah, it was. And he was a very, very honest guy. Like he would have told me. And so I said, why could you sum it up? And he was like, you got our story straight. And I was like, well, if I had told you that ahead of time, like, I'll just charge you for getting the story straight. Would you have paid me? And he's like, yeah, I think I would have. And I said, I don't believe you. And so he sent a message to the YC founders list where he talked about, you know, what, what I'd done and, and our, our work together. And that led to a few people reaching out to me to say, hey, to CEOs, to say, hey, I, I want help with this. And I was, I was happily proved wrong that there would be this line item that, that CEOs would budget for this. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that led to in 2013 the, your decision to become a free agent. So you've said your your success has proven your wife right and proven you wrong. What was that initial hesitation? Well, my wife has a career of her own, so she's a consultant to philanthropists on their giving. 
And for years, you know, I had talked with her about this kind of fantasy I had that I would not be in a company and I would just be working with CEOs on the, the, the story. And she was like, you should do that. You're really good at that. You, you know, you should, you know, listen to all these CEOs. They're like, everyone you work with tells you this. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, and I, I did the, basically the, 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 my skeptic was like, I don't think CEOs are going to pay for this. And the, and I didn't, what was really interesting about the experience with Justin was to learn that there was this place. I mean, I knew that when someone's pitching VCs for the first time, you know, starting the company, yeah, you want to have the story right, but there's no money at that stage either. What I learned with Justin was that there's this other point later in the maturation of the company where the getting the story straight matters, maybe even more. And where there is a lot of, there, there are a lot of resources to put toward that. And so my wife kept saying, you should do this. And I kept telling her why not, I wasn't going to do it. And when I finally did it, uh, I, you know, was happily <laughs> proving her right and me wrong that this was something that I could make a career of and that CEOs would value enough to, to pay for. Yeah. And it must just feel so full circle from that initial pitch for your startup where you got quite negative feedback. Yeah. So the, the that first pitch of the startup, I've told this story before. It sounds like you've heard it. My co-founder was, was Japanese. And so uh, he spoke English very well. But of the two of us, I was the one who was like fluent enough to, you know, write a, write a, a pitch. And so... I wrote it and we sent it out to some VCs and the reaction at first was really bad. And one of them wrote back to me, Andy, I rate every plan on a scale of that I receive on a scale of one to 10 and yours is a one. <laughs> and uh, in, case, in case we thought one might be the top of his rating scale, he then wrote uh, in parentheses worst. <laughs> and so, uh, and then he wrote reason, not a compelling story. And I was walking by this Barnes and Noble a few weeks later and I saw this sign in the window and it said for anyone who wants to tell a compelling story and there was an arrow to this stack of books and the books turned out to be about screenwriting and this was something i knew nothing about and so i read these books and what i realized was you know a, a movie is a pitch in a way it's a it's a pitch on a few levels it's a pitch of course to you know, gets the, the beginning of the movie particularly is a pitch to get you to stay in the, in the, in the theater, keep your butt in the seat. But it also is a pitch for a kind of moral of the story. You know, um, Star Wars is a pitch for trust the force, right? Most love stories are a pitch for some, some way of being that's usually kind of unselfish. You know, when Harry met Sally is a pitch for, men and women can be friends and lovers, which is the way that, uh, you know, Billy Crystal's character starts out by, by not believing that and comes to, I think, change his mind by the end. And I started to wonder, like, what of this could I apply to the pitch? And so I rewrote the pitch and I, uh, based on some of the things I was learning and, and, you know, after 20, it's been 20, over 20 years since then. So I've learned a lot of things and, and look back on that as a kind of feeble effort, but it was enough where we sent it out and we then started getting much more interest. And um, it was, it was really palpable, the change. And so that was a, really the first, yeah, inkling I had that there was kind of something there. Yeah. 
I mean, you've been doing it eight years now, but you've mentioned that you still feel nervous before a new engagement. And you really very honestly share your, your insights and, and feelings about that. What inspires you to, to be that open? I don't know. I, uh, maybe partly it's like partly it's to get some reassurance from people like, hey, I feel this way too, you know, which is maybe helps me calm those nerves or manage them a little bit just to put them out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, to normalize it. The, the nerves are, I think, in a way healthy. Yeah. If it wasn't that, then it would be a sign I wasn't excited about doing it. Like it wasn't really, there wasn't a challenge to it and that I wasn't really bringing myself to it. So uh, I don't know, I guess it's a bunch of reasons. Does any, does any of that ring true for you? Yeah, it's getting that reassurance. I think that helps a lot. You know, just having someone tell you that you can do it, you're great yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah. And a lot yeah. of people will respond to, by, to, to like that in the comments. I usually try to tell them, wow, that means a lot to me. I probably don't get to tell everybody who says that, but it really does. Yeah. And well, we, we talked about the miso soup, the socks, the underwear. Are there, are there any other elements that help you kind of get in that groove? One of them, one of the things is I complain to my wife that I'll always say like, wow, this one is going to be really hard. This one is different. It's going to be really hard. And she'll say, yeah, you said that last time. And then I'll say, no, no, but this one... I know this one's, I know I said that last time, but this one is different, really different. And she's like, yeah, you said that last time too. So <laughs> uh, just having that conversation, somehow I really do have that conversation with her every time that helps me. And of course I'm doing all the things that, that you'd think. So I'm, I ask the teams I work with, the CEOs to send me, you know, whatever they can to help me get up to speed on what they're facing, where they, you know, any inkling about where they think they want to go with the narrative. And I, I wind up doing a lot of reading and research before I start so that, you know, I'm on the same page and that helps too. That helps where I feel prepared. Yeah. 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 And it sounds like you also have a very, very well-defined process in terms of how the whole engagement works. Yeah, th there are some variations, but but yes, I think one of the great things that a consultant can do, if it's possible, is to productize the offering in some way. And this was advice that I got actually from that co-founder in that startup. That his name is Zen Ohashi. Zen wound up after startup creating a a management coaching company in Japan that is huge. And one of the big pieces of advice he gave me was, could you productize it? Which means, you know, initially I was, you know, someone would read one of my posts or whatever and say, hey, I want some help. And I'd, I'd basically scope it out. I'd say, okay, let me, let's talk and, you know, tell me what you want. And then I'll put together a proposal for you and I'll charge you a certain amount of money, whether that's by the hour or a fixed fee, whatever. And at a certain point, I felt comfortable. I don't think I could have done this at the beginning, but there was a certain point where I felt comfortable to say, hey, you know, here's how I think it should go. Here's the process. And here's what I'll charge for that. And that shift, I think, made it much easier for me to grow my practice because I could just say, here it is. You know, it, it's much faster 
for someone to decide, is this a fit for me or it's not a fit for me? Uh, you know, of course, I'm always tweaking it and, and, and learning and, and improving it. But yeah, I think as a consultant, that was a major breakthrough for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of finding fit both ways. And uh, it was actually at my previous company that I first learned about your work. I was tasked with coming up with a new sales deck and my my manager pointed me towards your article. It was eye-opening. Oh, great. Great to hear that. Yeah. As you know, that article has gotten a lot of traction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is kind of like the normal way where, you know, the sale, there's there's some thought that the sales deck is a, is a kind of output of some strategy that's thought of at the top level. So there's some strategy that gets defined, whether it's like, I don't know, positioning statement or mission vision, whatever, or someone fills out some kind of positioning template or positioning document. And then we're going to build the sales deck off of that. And I found that sometimes in organizations like you know the idea of that is like this that thing whatever it is it's usually an internal thing and it's supposed to kind of guide everybody to be on the same page and i found you know that people are supposed to go back to it when they're want to create like a sales deck or whatever and i found often people wouldn't go back and so i really thought hard about what would be the the asset that would Kind of unite everybody and i think for a b2b company it really is the sales deck like the sales you know that's the main channel we're talking to people through or at least you know certainly a, a very very important channel almost always and if we could align everybody on that and know that that's working then let's take that out and you know be the let's have that be the kind of central organizing instrument of the story it's a controversial stance because it's backwards from how most people see it. But I found that it, it, it can really work. Yeah. For me, I would say the two biggest takeaways have been lead with change in the world and mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. The, the sales deck is the story. Yeah. 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 And you, you have a podcast of your own, well, actually two now, um, but the, the, <laughs> leaving aside the comedy podcast, there's your bigger narrative podcast. What, what inspired you to launch that? So one of the downsides of having a very defined process that has a defined end is you're, you kind of lose touch with people who you've worked with. And so I found I was wondering, like, how's this going? <laughs> like, how's it going with what we did? You know, seemed good, but, you know, haven't heard. Or or then I'd see something different on the website and I'd, oh, God, I'd, like, go into a kind of, like, spiral of, like, oh, God, they hated it. They, you know, it was terrible. So I was talking with a friend of mine named Carla. She appears she appears on the, uh, the Chill Beefs podcast with the autocorrect. But I was talking with her and she was like, hey, why don't you call these people? Why don't you call them up and ask them what, you know, what's going on? And I was like, well, I can't really, you know, what excuse? What? And then I was like, oh, what if I did it as a podcast and that I'll have an excuse to talk to them? <laughs> so, so, uh, so I did that. And 
from the very first one, I just started hearing about the impact of the of our work and that that it had this impact that was just far greater than I could have imagined. And so I found so it was a huge relief and gratifying and just interesting. So the initial impulse was just really to get back in touch like have an excuse to get back in touch with CEOs I worked with. And then I found that a lot of people really seemed to enjoy hearing how these CEOs came up with their narrative, struggled with it. I also included a couple of folks like the CEO of Zwara, Tian Tzuo, um, who I wrote about in that greatest sales deck post and had him say, yeah, when we first came up with, you know, we're living in a subscription economy, which is the cornerstone of their narrative. I didn't really love it. And in fact, we dropped it for like a year because I don't know, it had these connotations of like, I don't know, cheap magazine subscription or, you know. And so I think it was reassuring for a lot of people to hear that these, what have become these like sort of classic successful strategic narratives in the world were not like recognized as that the minute they were birthed. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the podcasting medium is so apt for, right. For really telling that story. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. To hear what, yeah. hear the real details behind it. Yes. So I'm, I'm kind of seeing a pattern here. You use podcasts to keep in touch with people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you you found me out. That's true. <laughs> and so we, we can't talk about your podcast without talking about the intro sequence. So I've I've listened to, a, I'm, I'm kind of a podcast junkie, right? So I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I really like to analyze the music, how, how things start off. And your intro sequence is truly unique. And especially, you know, considering that it's a business podcast, right? It could be a pretty vanilla intro sequence, but it's not. So how did that come about? <laughs> Two things happened. One was I'm a huge fan of a podcast called Heavyweight. It's a Gimlet podcast, and it's hosted by a man named Jonathan Goldstein. Jonathan was a producer at This American Life for a long time. He was the creator of a lot of classic This American Life especially some the funnier uh, episodes. And Jonathan's heavyweight podcast always starts out with a phone call to this one friend of his who's very dismissive of him. So he'll be like, hey, Jackie, how's it going? And she'll be like, Jonathan, I don't have time for you. Goodbye. Like it's some variation of, on that, right? And I love this idea of starting with a phone call. Uh, like I, Like you said, I didn't want to start just sort of like, hello, it's, you know. And so I thought about, well, who can I call? And my mother happened to be visiting. <laughs> this was before COVID and they live in New York. We live in California. So she was visiting and I start telling her about, she's like, oh, you're doing a podcast. So I told her what, what I was thinking of the name of it to be, the bigger narrative. And she starts telling me how she hates that name. <laughs> and so I said, hold on, mom. And I, so I just, I just videotaped her telling me this, like everything she hated about the name. And I put this online, like, hey, I'm doing this new podcast. My mother hates the name. And people just really love this. And so then I thought, well, okay, maybe I could call her. And she's a person who has a, a, a long business background herself. So she, was, she started a law firm in her 40s, 
when you know so after i was out of the house my sister and i were out of the house she she started a business and she was also very early on technology she she likes to poo poo herself as like oh i don't know anything about computers but she had she bought an apple 2 plus like and had it in our house you know when i was in when i was in high school and that's how i learned to code and she she was already she had this database business she was starting out of our house so she she understands like the basic stuff about technology and business and from someone who's experienced it but you know she's a mom too so <laughs> uh we tried it and and people seem to really like that so every time what basically i, I do the interview uh with my guest so it's like Tian Suo from Zora, whoever. And then I send it to my mother. She listens to it. And then I interview her about what she thinks people will get out of the podcast or what she found interesting. And that becomes the, that interview becomes the intro to the episode, that call yeah. with her. Yeah. Yeah. And so well done because it just kind of blends seamlessly into the episode after that. Thanks. Thanks. So I know season two is coming out. Could you tell us anything about what to look forward to? Yeah, so season two is coming. So more my mom introducing, and you know her agent is is still negotiating the final uh, deal with me. I'm I'm kidding, but uh, <laughs> but it seems like she'll be signed on for this for the second season. Uh, I've done three interviews so far, CEO interviews. They're all great. They're all very different. You know, one is. One is the CEO of a company that's probably 30, 40 million, maybe more, maybe 50, 60 million of, of VC financing. Can't remember exactly. Uh, one's, one's a company that's probably, that, that's just raising their first round. It's, I think, going to be a big round, but just raising. And then one person is, is an independent business person. He's actually an ex-NFL football player who uh mm-hmm. who was interested in in building a narrative for his business so and and whole bunch of ceos i've worked with who are still uh still on the calendar to interview so i'm hoping that new episodes will start appearing uh, sometime like late may early june somewhere on there cool cool i'm looking forward to it thanks and yeah and just to wrap up so We've talked about your career. You've had a whole range of roles. I, I know you also invest in a in a career coach. What's what have been some of your best lessons from that? <laughs> uh, well, one of the lessons is just you know it's really valuable to have somebody in your corner. Yeah, who is rooting for you and just wants the best for you. I mean, of course, I have family like that and and friends like that, but someone who I can go to talk to. F- uh, I, I see her usually around once every few weeks for a couple hours. And especially being in business myself, there's no water cooler for me to complain at, or there's no, you know, I can, I can say some things to my wife, but you know, she has her own work to, and things to do. And she hears lots of other complaints from me about like <laughs> family stuff. So there's only, you know, she only has a certain amount of capacity, even though she is really great at, at, helping me deal with stuff. So I think that's really the biggest thing rather than even any kind of amazing wisdom, although there is Mm -hmm. some of that too, you know? So for instance, I mentioned, you know, I have this tendency, like when I don't hear from people to kind of spiral down into like bad, bad narratives about what happened. And she's a real big advocate of, uh, you know, Hey, go out and, and check out the assumption and, 
you know, see what's really going on. And, and most of the time when I do, yeah, there's something else going on that really had nothing to do with me. So checking things out, thanking people, <laughs> you know, yeah. she's bigger than I am on, you know, send them flowers or, or chocolates, you know, sometimes that feels a little bit over the top to me, but, and, and I don't do it a lot, but sometimes it feels right. So, yeah. yeah. And how long have you been working with her for? Wow, I've been working with her for over 20 years. So I first went to her right at the time that I left that startup and and becoming a journalist was, you know, part of the work that we did. She I she said to me, "What do you really want to do next?" And I was like, "Well, I think I want to open a restaurant because I loved cooking and love food." And yeah. she was like, "Okay, well, why don't you get a job in a restaurant?" And I was like, "Yeah, no." I don't think I'm going to do that. She's like, okay, well, you're not going to open a restaurant then. And she's like, yeah. I was like, you're right. And she, she said, what, what's the next thing you'd like to do? And I said, well, you know, I've been writing and I'd, I'd love to become a better writer. And she said, okay. And, and she gave me the name of this writing coach who I wound up going to see and, and wound up taking classes at. And that kind of led me to thinking, hmm, maybe I could take this writing thing more seriously. And that became, you know, my career for a while. Yeah. Wow, that's so great! So she's she's followed you all along for the past two decades from through all these all these different roles. Yeah, 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 cool. yeah. And I'm very lucky to have her. Her name's Victoria Zenoff. Uh, if anybody's looking for a career coach and interested, that's who she is. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll include uh, her name in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Andy. This has been really fabulous. I've listened to so many of your interviews, read your articles, but to hear your story directly has been fabulous. Thank you, Vijay. I'm sorry to make you be the one who has to edit this and, and sort of make sense of this uh, in, in a podcast, but thank you for the opportunity. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a rating and review in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.